0: I remember years ago, a college student came up to me. He had been really was facing a big challenge, a crisis of faith. He'd been to a, a college class about the Bible, and he, he came to me and said, I just learned that the, the ending of, Ma- of Mark's gospel was added later about the part where Jesus appeared to his disciples. It wasn't in the original. So did this student have something to be concerned about? In 2008, a New Testament professor and Bible skeptic, Bart Ehrman, wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. He claimed that because there are so many variances in our manuscripts, our Bibles are hopelessly corrupt. And of course, that's just kind of on par for Bart Ehrman. He's always writing outlandish stuff like that and trying to uh, get his readers to become skeptics like himself. Uh, unfortunately, though, Bart Ehrman's book spent several months on the New York Times bestseller list. And to the unprepared reader, it may, lose them to le- it may lead them to lose confidence in Scripture. Well, I'm your pastor, and I don't want you to be unprepared by picking up some uh, bestseller that you see on the stand. And so today's message is going to be quite different from what I would usually give, um, but it's because I want to prepare you. I want to equip you. I want to prepare you with facts uh, and and some understanding. And uh, today we are continuing our series on wrestling with the book. Um, And of course, uh, that book is the Bible. And today's message is this. Aren't the Bible manuscripts full of copy errors? Last week, we looked at how can, the, how can science and the Bible be compatible, and if you missed that one, I encourage you to go to our website or find it on our app. Um, but today, we're looking at the manuscripts. Are they full of copy errors? Uh, and I would say maybe some of you here today would consider, someone here would consider yourself a Bible skeptic. You know, you don't put much value on the trustworthiness of what's between these covers, uh, but I just want to say, I'm so glad you're here. You know, I, would, I really consider it an honor that, that you came. And, uh, and I hope that today's message gives you something to think about. And some of you uh, maybe have been to a college class like my, my young friend years ago. Uh, or maybe you someday you will be. And uh, I want to prepare you because you may face someone like that. Who's, who just feels it's their job is to make you as skeptical about uh, your faith as they are about the, theirs. And some of you have a friend who has picked up a book like Ehrman's. And I want to prepare you to at least begin to have a reasonable conversation. Okay? Now, let me reassure you about this. If, if I looked at the evidence and concluded that the Bible had been horribly corrupted by manuscript errors, and that there was no hope of regaining any confidence of its reliability, I'd be a skeptic too. But that's not the case. Uh, you know, before the printing press was invented in the 15th century, all copies were written by hand. That's why we call them manuscripts. Uh, They were copied by professional scribes trained for the task. And yet, as good as they were at it, God did not prevent those scribes from errors. Leaving a word out. Skipping a line. Getting words uh, turned around. Misreading a word. And then what would happen? The next scribe making a copy from that one would... Uh, repeat the previous scribe's mistakes. Fortunately, we have such a wealth of manuscripts that scholars are able to kind of see the whole picture and and able to to tell where the errors occurred. And and so here's what I want you to know today as we wrestle with the book. We don't have any of the original Bible documents. And to some of you, that's going to be a shock. Like, really? Well, it's true. We don't have any of the original Bible documents, but scholars are able to examine the many manuscripts and determine with a high degree of precision what the originals said. So what I want you to do right now is put a Bible in your hands. If you didn't bring one, there's some Bibles in the pew racks. Uh, If there aren't enough for you to have one of your own, just share with the person next to you. But I want you to hold it, will you? Hold it. This book is an anthology of 66 books written over more than a thousand years by more than 40 authors, and yet it tells one story the story of the God who created all things and how it went horribly wrong through sin. It's a story of how God did not give up on us and he set in motion a plan of salvation that reached its climax in Jesus. And one day that story will be complete and God will restore all things. That's the story of the book. Now, I want to tell you this. You know, a lot of times I'm, I'm saying, okay, open your Bibles to such and such a page and some of you go, oh yeah, I don't do that. Well, today you got to, because today's message it will absolutely not make any sense unless you're following with me, okay? We're going to look up a few passages. I'm going to give you time to do that. We're going to first turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, and a lot of you know this. This is a love chapter. You've, you've been to weddings where it's been read. Uh, it's on, in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1152. Don't you love those page numbers, huh? All right, and here the Apostle Paul, he is is, uh, waxing eloquent about love. He says in verse 3, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have what? Say it with me. Do not have love. I gain nothing. Now, notice there it says after the word boast, It has this little superscript letter C now go down to the footnotes and footnotes are a great thing in the Bible if you're not used to them uh, they give us a ton of information alternate translations cross references to other Bible passages notes about meanings of the original words now here the letter C footnote says some manuscripts have body to the flames which would make it read, if I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to the flames, or as the King James said, my body to be burned, so which is it? Giving over my body to boast or to the flames? In the Greek, the original language with which Paul wrote, there's only one letter difference between flames and boast. Somewhere along the way, A scribe made a very simple mistake and an error crept into a certain group of subsequent manuscripts but when they when scholars look at all of the manuscripts they are very confident that boast was the original now other times uh, instead of making an error a scribe tried to be a little too helpful and made an addition uh, and the next scribe just thought that that was, you know, part of the original and just copied it as it was. Again, scholars are able to tell this, uh, usually without much difficulty, where these errors, where these additions crept in so that our translations are more accurate. Let's go back to that college student's question, okay, about the ending of Mark's gospel. Uh, so turn with me to Mark 16, starting with verse 9 on page 1023 if you're using the pew Bible now in the new international version which we have here uh, at at Mark 16 you can see that this entire section is set off in italics it's letting you know right up front that this is this is different okay and before verse 9 it has this note in brackets the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses nine through 20. You will find a note like this in virtually every translation of the Bible in the last century. So where did verses nine through 20 come from? Well, it, it seems that to, to, to many readers of, of Mark's gospel, that it ends kind of abruptly at verse 8. Like, why did it, you know, you think, like, why did it end there? Why don't you tell more? Well, who knows why? Maybe, maybe Mark ran out of paper, ran out of a scroll. You know, when a scroll comes to an end, that's all you got. So he's trying to, you know, got to wrap this up quick, you know. <laughs> or, uh, you know, it, it could be that he thought this was just the ending that his readers needed. Well, somewhere along the way, a very helpful scribe decided it needed a fuller conclusion and gave it one based on other scriptures you know it only takes one overeager scribe to start something like this and that's why the Bible translators uh, add this note in brackets and put the passage in italics and and unless you're a King James version only uh, reader you know no church that I know would consider this part of the official Bible okay and as I said we don't have any of the original Bible documents but scholars are able to examine the many manuscripts and determine with a high degree of precision what the originals said now mark 16 is one of only two extended passages Uh, where there is serious question we're gonna look at the other one now so let's turn to uh, John chapter 7 starting with verse 53 goes through verse uh, chapter 8 verse 11 pew Bible page uh, 1072 and a lot of you are gonna recognize this one because this is that famous passage even if you don't read the Bible you may have heard of you know whoever's without sin cast the first stone you know the woman caught in adultery that is this passage right and there you see again uh, a note in brackets: the earliest manuscripts, and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 753 through8:11. And it also says that, that some manuscripts do not, uh, that do include it, put it in other places in John's gospel, or even in Luke's gospel. Notice again that that whole passage is, is set apart in italics. And and even though it appears in some very early manuscripts, it is very clear that this was not in the original of the Gospel according to John. Now, what does that mean for this passage? I I side with scholars who see this as a truly historical episode of Jesus' life, but it doesn't seem to have a proper home in any of the Gospels. Therefore, I take it as, as, as... true information about Jesus, but I wouldn't build a whole doctrine just out of this one paragraph, okay? We, we have more than 20,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, including uh, nearly 6,000 that are in the original Greek, um, some of them dating back to the second century. Very likely, some of those second century manuscripts were copies of the original, or at least copies of copies. And as an added check, we have over a million quotations from the New Testament by the ancient church fathers. I remember years ago, uh, a lady in one of the small-town churches that I served named Mildred, she kind of cornered me in the church kitchen. And I got the feeling she wasn't going to let me go until I answered her question. Uh, and she, she spoke with a kind of a crackling voice. Mildred said, a friend of mine asked, why we Methodists don't say the Lord's Prayer the way it's written in the Bible? She said, I didn't know what to say. Why, why do we pray the Lord's Prayer differently than what's written in the Bible? Feeling a little cornered. <laughs> Uh, I blurted out the first thing that came to my mind, well, it depends on what translation you use. Fortunately, that satisfied her, and I escaped. And that was a good answer for some of the differences. Uh, for example, many churches like ours, when we pray, which we're going to hear uh, before communion, the Lord's Prayer, we uh, will say, forgive us our trespasses, while other churches say, forgive us our debts, like it read in the New International Version. Matter of fact, you cannot find a Bible today that gives this passage in Matthew 6 as trespasses. So where did trespasses come from? Let's look it up. Matthew 6, uh, verses 12 through 13, which in the Pew Bible is on page 970, Let me give you a little background here while you're looking it up. Nearly 500 years ago, the Bible was published in English for the first time uh, using the printing press. It was translated by a guy named William Tyndale, and he translated the Lord's Prayer with, forgive us our trespasses. And everybody who knew English learned it that way. And we've been saying trespasses ever since. Now, the word trespasses makes me think about crossing a line. And so we're asking to be forgiven for crossing a line, crossing into the territory of sin where we shouldn't have been. Now, now the Greek word in Matthew's gospel literally means debts. But Jesus isn't talking about literal money, is he? He's using that word metaphorically so it means offenses or sins. So, debts versus trespasses is a matter of translation. It's the same at the end of verse 13, uh, where it says, deliver us from the evil one, instead of deliver us from evil, like we usually say. Now, evil one is a better translation, although evil is an acceptable translation. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we can mean Lord, you know, deliver me from the evil one, the Satan, or deliver me from an evil person, or deliver me from the evil within. But we also note, when when we were reading that passage, did you notice that Jesus doesn't end his prayer with, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So what's up with that? When William Tyndale translated Matthew's gospel in 1525, he included that phrase, So did the King James Version in 1611. But translations since then have left it out. Why? Let's look at the footnote marked E13. Now, first it says that from the evil one could be translated deliver us from evil. And then it says, some ancient manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, all all Bible translations today put that in the footnotes. Why? Because as the scholars look at at all the manuscripts, they find that the evidence points overwhelmingly to the conclusion that it was not in the original. So, where did he come from? One scenario is that this prayer uh, was used in worship in the early centuries like we use it in worship today. And it felt kind of abrupt to end it with deliver us from evil and it seemed kind of odd to end, to end the Lord's Prayer with a reference to the evil one so churches began adding a line of praise at the end and you know there's nothing wrong with that this line is loosely based on an Old Testament verse and then very likely Some scribe who knew the Lord's Prayer by heart from being in in church every Sunday noticed that the manuscript that that he was working from uh, left out that last line of the Lord's Prayer. And so, being very helpful, he added it back in, which had not been there before. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so did the scribe who copied his copy. And yet because the the best and earliest manuscripts don't include it we can be sure that it was not in the original now our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers they don't include that line when they pray the Our Father so here's a case where they are more biblical than we are as I said before we don't have any of the original Bible documents But scholars are able to examine the many manuscripts and determine with a high degree of precision what the originals said. Now, our Bibles, the ones that we have today, are based on much better uh, transcript evidence than was available to William Tyndale or to the uh, translators of the King James in 1611. And yet, you know, the substance of it is still the same. You, you, can be just, you could be just as much a Christian in 1611 using the King James Version as you can today using the New International Version or whatever version you use. Now, are there places in Scripture where we're not sure what that right wording is? There, there are some. Not very much, but there are some. So let me add this. All notable variants in manuscripts can be found in the footnotes of your Bible, and none of them affect our beliefs or practices. None of them affect our beliefs or practices. For example, if you turn to the next page, page 973, and let's look at Matthew 8 verse28. Uh, because there are there, so many variances, are, are, are kind of on this category. Uh, it starts out um, when he, that is Jesus, arrived at the other side, meaning the other side of the lake, in the region of the Gadarenes. You notice that little B after the word Gadarenes? Uh, now, if you look at the footnotes to the corresponding B28, it says that some manuscripts have alternate versions for the name of the region. Gergesenes, or Gerasenes, and I say, big deal. So what? I mean, they could have regional different variations in the spelling back then. Who knows? And it makes no difference whatsoever. And that's the way it is with most manuscript differences. They make variances. They make no difference. Now, so far, I've I've just dealt with the New Testament, but let me say one thing about the Old Testament. After World War II, some Bedouin shepherds uh, uh, found some old clay jars up in some very high caves near the Dead Sea. And in the following years, uh, more jars were found, and in these jars, they found some very ancient scrolls. And many of them were scriptures uh, of the Old Testament dating back to 250 B.C. to uh, 50 A.D. And it is amazing that they had survived. The most stunning finding was how little difference there was between the copies in Hebrew that we previously had going back to 1100 A.D. to these Dead Sea Scrolls that were now more than a thousand years older. Very, very little differences. It let us know how vigilant these scribes had been in copying these manuscripts all those centuries. It lets us know that the hand of God had been guiding this process. And so now what I want you to do is close that Bible again And hold it in your hands one more time, will you? Share with the person next to you if you need to. God inspired this book to be written for you. And one of the great miracles of history is that God has preserved this book for you. And in this book, God says... I'm here. Come and know me. I'm here. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that we live in a world where your revelation to us does exist. And we we know about you and we know your plan and your purpose in this world And Lord, we thank you that that your hand was uh, upon history preserving this for us so that we live in a a world where we can can know you through this revelation. And so, Lord God, we pray that you will make us, as John Wesley said of the early Methodists, that we can be people of the book, people of one book. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.